this great chapter for the fifth Sunday night in succession. We've been looking at it and its all-important message. And we've been doing so for this reason. It seems to me to be a good thing from time to time that we should deliberately stand back and take a large and a comprehensive view of the message of the Bible. There are so many today who seem to think that the message of the Bible is remote from life and irrelevant, that it doesn't meet us where we are in the midst of our problems and our difficulties. Well, now I've been at pains to try to show that the exact opposite is the truth and that there is no book in the world tonight that comes to us exactly where we are and in our exact predicament as the Bible does and in the particular way in which it does so. In other words, it seems to me that this third chapter of the book of Genesis is absolutely essential to a true understanding of life as it is at this moment. I'm speaking of the individual. I'm speaking of life as a whole. Now, we're all confronted by these problems, are we not? We've got our own personal problems. No one is perfectly happy. Things will go wrong. We all know what it is to be miserable. We all know what it is to have a sense of failure. We all are seeking for something which we haven't got. Why is that? What's the explanation? That's the problem. It isn't simply a theoretical problem. It's just that. Why these wars and tumults and uncertainties and disappointments? What is the matter? What is it all about? Well, for me to summarize what I've been trying to say, there are only two possible answers to all those questions. We either accept the teaching of this book which we call the Bible, or else we don't. And you see, I put all other answers into the one category. They are not the biblical answer. And that's the important thing about them, that they're not the biblical answer. Well, now, here is the case as it is put before us here. The Bible, I say, is a message about life, about man, about his problems and his troubles. That's why, you see, in addition to its teaching, it gives us history. It tells us about nations and what happened to them, about individuals and what took place in their lives. It's the most practical book in the world. And it tells us that it comes to us with a message from God about life itself and about our lives in particular. Now then, my suggestion has been that all that is put in this one chapter, here is the most important key to history that is available to men at this moment. It explains the past, it explains the present, it explains the future. I've been pointing out that this book is, that this chapter is at one and the same time a literal historical record of something that has actually happened. Let me put it as plainly as this. I have no gospel unless this is history. My gospel is based upon this history. This is not allegory, this is history. But in addition to that, it is in a most amazing way 
an account and a description, as we've seen, of the very thing that happens to us one by one. For, this is the astounding thing, every one of us in turn repeats the action of Adam and Eve. So we took it in different ways. We saw it, first of all, from the purely intellectual standpoint, those first verses. How the suggestion came and men began to doubt and then brought in his philosophy and began to reason. We've all done it. We are still doing it. Then we began to consider some of the consequences of doing that. This consciousness of nakedness, this feeling that we'd lost something, and the attempt to cover ourselves, which always fails, we went into that, the whole history of philosophy. And then uh, we went on beyond that to consider some further consequences. And that was our theme last Sunday night. Man thought at the beginning that he'd finished with God, that he could turn his back upon God and live an independent life. And he took his action, but you remember, he suddenly heard the voice of the Lord God in the cool of the evening. He can't escape from God. He hears the voice and he runs behind the trees to hide himself, thinking and imagining that God would not be able to find him there. But God searches him out, he finds him exactly where he is, and brings him right out and addresses him personally. And our point was that God still does that. We've all been hiding behind these trees. The camouflage we put up. The problems we say that confront us. We'll argue about anything as long as we can keep the gospel message from ourselves. There are your trees. I told you last Sunday evening that no doubt to many of us it would have been much more interesting and entertaining had I attempted to preach a sermon on the theme that's having the headlines in the newspapers today but that I regarded that as one of the trees. Because while I'd be giving my opinion about divorce, you who are not confronted by that particular problem would be feeling very happy about yourself, and your sin would not have been dealt with. Well, I confess freely that a man who stands in a pulpit like this is sorely and grievously tempted. This morning, a representative of the Press Association waited upon me before the service, wanting to know if I was going to consider the theme. And my only reply was that I never find my sermons in the headlines of newspapers. And that furthermore, I was going to preach about something that was of much greater concern to every reader of their newspaper but which I am certain they would not print because it wouldn't be sensational as they think. But if you're interested in sensationalism, this is to me the most sensational thing in the world at this moment. That every man born into this world is under the wrath of God. And unless he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that wrath will abide upon him. But the newspapers are not interested in that. That would involve them. The owners, the managers, the editors, everybody. We're always interested in somebody else. And some other problem remote from us. There are the trees. But the gospel brings us out and we've got to face God alone. Adam, where art thou? It's a personal question. Well, very well, my friends. That is more or less the point at which we've arrived. 
It all seems hopeless, doesn't it? Man fell from his first estate. He was driven out of paradise, and there's the flaming sword making, making it impossible for him to get back. His life is a life of toil. He's contending with thorns and thistles. Children are brought forth in pain and suffering. Death has come in. The world is in a state of chaos. That's the figure. That's the position. But thank God, the history doesn't end at that point. That isn't the end of the story. And that's why we are here at all in this building at this moment. And that's why I call myself a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Into this hopelessness and wretchedness and despair comes a pronouncement and a proclamation, a revelation of God and from God, revealing unto us his plan and his purpose. And it is to that that I'm anxious to call your attention this evening, as it is put to us so perfectly and in such a gloriously succinct manner in this 15th verse of this third chapter of the book of Genesis. Here is the first pronouncement and proclamation of the Christian gospel made away back in the Garden of Eden. How utterly ignorant they are who think that because we are Christians we don't need the Old Testament. It's a complete failure to understand the New Testament gospel. These things must go together, the old and the new. Why? Well, it's the same God operating right through. And there, away back at the beginning, he makes this announcement, this proclamation. Well, now let me try and summarize it by putting it to you like this. What is the message? What, what is the position confronting us? Well, it's this. The fact is, whether we like it or not, that the devil is controlling this world. That's where the history has brought us. Men in his folly, as Eve puts it in reply to God, the devil, the serpent, beguiled me. Having beguiled Adam and Eve in that way, the whole of humanity has been beguiled. And the result of that action was that mankind has put itself under the dominion and under the power and under the control of the devil. Now, let's be perfectly clear about this. I'm asserting that that is the only way to understand the history of the world. I say, as I said at the beginning, that we are concerned about contemporary history, about the state of mankind at this very moment, and about our own personal problems. And I say the question is, why are things as they are? There is only one adequate answer. It is the devil. We are under the control and the power of the devil. That's why things are as they are. That's why they have been as they have been. That's the whole explanation of history. Man, left to himself, is absolutely hopeless and helpless in the hands of the devil. 
Now, wait a minute. Someone may say, oh, yes, but you're basing all that on the third chapter of Genesis, and of course I no longer accept that. Uh, science now knows that this can't be true, of course. This is really just allegory. It's romance. It's fantasy. It's fancy. Well, of course, the simple reply to that is this, that science has got nothing to do with it at all. Science has got nothing to do with history. Science is supposed to deal with facts, and when the scientist goes beyond that, he ceases to be a scientist and he's trying to be a philosopher. And he's simply expressing opinions which are of no more value than the opinion of any man who's never had any scientific training at all. But, my dear friends, my point is that I am not basing it solely on the third chapter of Genesis. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has said about men? This is how he puts it. The strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace. And he continues to do so until one stronger than himself comes and despoils him of his armor and then liberates the goods. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His picture of mankind in sin, mankind as the result of this which happened here in paradise is this, that the whole of humanity is like a number of people in a great castle. There's a mighty wall surrounding the castle built to an enormous height, and this castle is governed by a great chieftain, a great power. The strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace. In a very subtle way, he allows us a certain amount of liberty. It's a big castle, this. There are extensive grounds. There's a sort of parkland. And you can walk backwards and forwards. And some people imagine that because they're not chained to a cell in the corner and can move about, that they've got absolute liberty. But the fact of it is that it's liberty only within the confines of the palace. You try to get out if you can. You try to scale those walls. You try to make a breach in them. You make any effort or endeavor to get into that world that's outside the palace walls. And you'll find yourself clubbed back in helplessness. The strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace. They're absolutely under his control. That is the view of mankind in sin which is taken by the Son of God himself. And of course his servants repeat what he said. Indeed, our Lord himself said it again to one of his most notable servants. Do you remember the story of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus seeing the risen Lord and the Lord giving him a commission? He said, I'm going to send you now to the people and to the Gentiles. What for? Well, said the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord to Saul of Tarsus, I'm going to send you to them to open their eyes, to bring them out of darkness into light and from the power of Satan unto God. There it is again, you see. I'm going to send you out as a preacher, he said, and as an apostle to these Gentiles, to bring them not only from darkness to light, from, but from the power of Satan unto God. 
So it's not surprising that this man, when he became the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Galatians, praises God for the Lord Jesus Christ, because he hath delivered us from this present evil world. And in the Colossians he says it again, who hath translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. It's everywhere. Mankind then by nature is under the dominion and under the authority and under the power of the devil who rules this world. He's the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air as we've been seeing recently on Sunday mornings. The spirit that now ruleth in the children of disobedience. That's who he is. So you see, my friends, the problem confronting every man and woman in this world is not just the problem of certain sins, not the problem of certain weaknesses, not, uh, not simply the problem of desiring to get happiness which we haven't got and a certain amount of understanding and hope and joy and things like that. That's not our problem. The problem confronting every one of us is how to escape from the dominion of Satan. How to get out of the clutches of the devil. How to get somehow make an exit out of this kingdom of darkness into light and knowledge and God, how to get back into that paradise from which we've been thrust out, how to get beyond that flaming sword. That's the problem. And the whole tragedy of the world this evening is that men and women do not realize that. You see, all your philosophic systems, all your educational systems, all your cults, they know nothing about that, and they're not interested in it. They're out to make you feel happier. They say, of course, we know you're miserable, and you'd like to be happy very well. Do what we tell you, and we'll make you happy. And of course, up to a point, they succeed. But you see, you can be happy in the grounds of the strong man armed. There are poor lunatics who are happy in asylums. There are poor drunkards who, having taken a certain amount of alcohol, feel perfectly happy. And everything in the world is perfect. They were depressed before they began to drink, that's why they drank. But having taken a certain amount, there's no difficulty, there's no problem. Nothing's wrong at all. They are perfectly happy in their experience. But oh, the tragedy is they're in bondage and more in it than ever. Now the cults, you see, and all these other agencies, they say they can help us in this respect and the other, and they can, but they never face our ultimate problem, the radical difficulty, the dominion of Satan, this thing that man got himself into away back in paradise. That's the problem. And let me say it even at the risk of being misunderstood. Any evangelism, so-called, that doesn't deal with this is a false evangelism. The test to apply is not whether we feel happier or better. Not whether we've got a joy which we didn't have before. Not that we've shed certain sins. But are we out from under the dominion of Satan? Do we know God? Are we reconciled to him? Are we really in the light? That's the question. 
And here it is, I say, all put before us here. For the apostle tells us, you remember, in a striking phrase, in his second epistle to the Corinthians, in the fourth chapter, in the fourth verse, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of God. He blinds the mind. The captivity is such, we're not allowed to think straightly. We're not allowed to see the meaning of the gospel. He blinds. Very well, there's the problem. There is the situation of mankind. What can be done about it? I've already told you that men can do nothing about it. And until you have come to see and to believe and to accept that men can do nothing about it, you cannot possibly believe the gospel that's to follow. No man will believe in Christ if he thinks he can put himself right. A man has to see his hopelessness as a sinner before he ever sees the need of the Savior. Man is totally helpless. He's there like Adam and Eve, shivering, frightened, alarmed, terrified, not knowing what to do, and listening to the pronouncement of judgment, and thrust out into the misery and wretchedness and hopelessness of life. But thank God I say, that's not the end of the story. God now announces and reveals his program. And here it comes in, in this 15th verse of this third chapter of the book of Genesis. I'll never allow anybody to take this out of my Bible. It's my gospel. It's the beginning of it all. I don't understand it apart from this. This is the whole message of the Bible. It is a message to the effect that God is going to conquer and to defeat Satan and to deliver people from him and his foul dominion. That's what it is. Nothing less. That's how God himself announces his own gospel. Not simply to make us happier and better and brighter and all the rest of it. Not at all. The problem is to deliver us out of that bondage. Satan must be dealt with. Satan must be conquered and vanquished. And God announces his program for accomplishing that great and mighty end. That then, I say, is the message of the whole Bible from here to the very end. The Bible is not a book which tells us what we've got to do to put ourselves right. The Bible is not a book with just an appeal to us to do this, that, or the other, to accept certain ideas and put them into practice. It's not a book teaching morality or ethics or anything else. I'll tell you what it is. It's not a book, I say, that asks us primarily to do anything. It's a great announcement of what God has done. It's God acting. It's the God who comes into the garden to man in his utter hopelessness. What if he hadn't done that? I'd have no gospel. There'd be no light. The world would be in darkness at this moment. There'd be nothing to say. There'd be no hope. But God has come and God has spoken and he's revealed a plan and a program. It's revelation, my friends. It isn't what man thinks. It isn't what man aspires after. It isn't what man proposes. 
It is entirely from God. It's God announcing his program, revealing it. I know nothing about it apart from this book. And it is sheer impertinence and ignorance and intellectual arrogance to put your mind and to say this is right and that's wrong. It's either all right or it's all wrong. For it all hangs together. It's all of one piece. It is a revelation. I know nothing about God apart from this. I know nothing about the way of salvation apart from this. I am entirely shut up to this. And to talk about modern knowledge and recent discoveries and how things are different now from what they were 60 or 70 years ago. My dear friends, it's so childish it's really not worth answering. We are concerned with the revelation of the eternal God that he has been pleased to make. He broke into the tragedy of Eden and he spoke and he's speaking still. What has he said? Well, here it is. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's it. This is true history. Now the first thing we have to learn according to the Bible is that there are two histories. Two sorts of history if you like. Two types of history. There is of course the history that you can read about in your secular history books. It is history. There is the history of philosophy and of thought. The history of art and of culture and of men's endeavors. Perfectly right, it's all history. But that's only one of two histories. And here you see the Bible comes and speaks plainly to the modern men. The tragedy of the modern men, he says, that is the whole of history. That is the only history. But thank God it isn't. And I thank God it isn't for this reason. That all that history, true as it is, and in many ways wonderful as it has been, gets us nowhere. I think I mentioned it last night, last Sunday night, whether I did or not, it doesn't matter. But I agree entirely with those great historians who tell us that all that history is simply a matter of circles. That it makes no progress, that there is no advance. You know that cyclical view of history, don't you? There's the challenge, here's the response. And in response to that challenge, I get up and I go on and I become strong and mighty. And at last I conquer. I think I've arrived and that my descendants will advance upwards beyond me. But it hasn't happened like that. There have been great civilizations in China. They've all gone. They had great learning, marvelous knowledge, even in a scientific sense. It's all somehow become lost. And they've sunk again until recently into a state of ignorance. The same was true in Egypt, you remember. Mighty dynasties, great civilizations. It happened in Greece. It happened in other countries. It happened with Rome. It happened with Spain. That's the story. They rise and they go down again. Why? Well, according to the great historians, it's simply this, that having arrived and having conquered, we begin to rest on our oars. 
We've conquered the most of the world, perhaps, but other people begin to say, why should they have all? They feel the challenge, and they make their response. They come up, we go down. That's the story of history, isn't it? That's secular history. And you know, it's not only true about nations in a military sense. It's equally true about knowledge. Everybody agrees about this that there have been periods of great knowledge which have been succeeded by periods of darkness and of ignorance. We talk about the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages before the Middle Ages, when all the wonderful culture of Greece was entirely lost and Erasmus and others in the 16th century had to rediscover it. That's the story. I could keep you at very great length and entertain you by telling you some stories about that. Have you read in a journal how the ancient Chinese knew all about penicillin without giving it the name? They did. They knew about it. They were using it. They didn't know the name, but they discovered it. Then it all became lost for so many centuries, and back it's come again. My time has gone. I mustn't be tempted to give you an illustration out of my own experience of that. But I once knew a research worker, a fellow of the Royal Society, who came into my room one day in despair and said, I'm giving up research work. Why, I said. Well, he said, I've worked for these years, as you know, on this problem. I thought I'd made a great discovery. I went and read, and read in the Royal College of Surgeons Library, and there in a footnote I find that the ancient Egyptians had been doing the very thing that I thought I'd discovered for the first time. Well, there you are. All that other history is a matter of cycles. You just go round and round. You never arrive anywhere. And in spite of all the years and their travel and their toil, man is still in his predicament. He's as miserable and as unhappy and as much a failure as he's ever been. Thank God there's another history. There is a true history. It's this history. God initiating a process, raising up a seed that is going to fight this foul tyrant that has conquered men is going to vanquish him and deliver humanity. This spiritual history that runs side by side with the other history intermingles with it now and again, intervenes in it and yet is always separate. The history of the Bible. Of course these nations are mentioned. Cultures appear here. Greece and Rome and Egypt, they all come in here. Yes, but they're mere incidentals. The history here is the carrying out of this purpose of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between her seed and thy seed. Thou, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Do you know, my friends, the Bible is nothing but the outworking of all that. That's its message. How God is vanquishing and destroying the devil and is ultimately going to undo his nefarious work. And you notice that God put it like this. He said, there's the plan. And he said at the very beginning that it was going to be absolutely certain that nothing should stop it and nothing should frustrate it. I like the word. He shall bruise thy heel Thou, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head. The absolute certainty 
the authority of the eternal God. Very well, what's happened? Well, read your Bibles. Go through from beginning to end. Follow it on, keeping your eye on this. Don't allow yourself to be lost in the details. Keep your eye on the big thing. Follow the red line if you like. Call it what you will. Keep to this theme of salvation. Watch it being worked out. The two lines, the two seeds, the conflict. It began at once. In two of the sons of Adam and Eve. Abel, Cain. Cain, the representative of Satan, the man full of hate and of murder in his heart, and who murdered his brother, yes, but Abel, the seed of the woman raised by God, the new line, the conflict. They hated one another. Abel didn't hate Cain. Cain hated Abel. But there was conflict from the very beginning. And on it goes. I'm simply giving you a bird's eye view of the Bible because so many fail to see this, and thereby they don't understand the Christian message. Look at it again in Noah and the rest of the world. Noah and his family, just eight people. And the whole of the rest of the world, the rest was destroyed. The eight were saved. It's the same conflict. Those people ridiculed Noah. God had raised Noah. He made him a preacher of righteousness. He revealed his program to him. And Noah believed it. And he began building his ark. And they said, the man's mad. What's he talking about a flood for? He's been saying it for years. A hundred years went and nothing happened. On the man went with his ark and his preaching. And they resisted him. And they persecuted him. But you remember what happened? It's the same conflict. The seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent. Hurry on and come to the call of a man whose name was Abram. And see how God called him out of his land. He came from a pagan land and was undoubtedly brought up as a pagan himself. But God called him out and revealed himself to him and said, Look here, you're a part of my program. I'm going to do something in you that's going to eventuate in the Savior. The seed of the woman, Abram, turned into Abraham. And out of his loins comes the nation of Israel, God's chosen special people, the bearers of his oracles, the ones who speak with his authoritative voice. But they are opposed by the nations. The devil even gets into the camp of God's people. He leads them into sin. There's a struggle within the nation as well as with the nations outside. It's nothing but the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Follow it right through. It's such a breathless story. There are times when you feel that God's going to lose. The enemy seems to be triumphant. The children of Israel have almost gone. There's nobody left who's a believer. Poor Elijah, sitting under his juniper tree, said, I alone am left. But he was wrong. There were another 7,000 But so it appears at times. You read and you say, what's going to happen? The seed of the woman's about being exterminated. The devil is so mighty, he has such great forces. He's triumphant all along the line. What can happen? Oh, here's the fight and the conflict. It goes on. And people began to feel hopeless. So God began to send them special messengers called prophets who said, it's all right, hold on, my purpose is still sure, I'm going to send the deliverer, a Messiah is going to appear. And they waited, and the years passed, and he didn't come. 
But he raised another messenger who said the same thing. And they came one after another. And then there was a terrible 400 years when there was no word from God. After Malachi, dead silence. And people said, where is God? What is happening? The enemy was powerful. There were terrible persecutions. And even Jerusalem and the Holy Land were conquered by the Roman Empire. The devil seems triumphant. The seed of the serpent has prevailed. No, he hasn't. When the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. Here is the real seed of the woman, a virgin birth, you see, not man as the father, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Ghost. The seed of the woman has arrived. But watch the conflict now. King Herod, as the seed of Satan, tried to kill him even when he was an infant, you remember? You remember the story? Read your first chapters again of Matthew's Gospel. See the seed of the serpent trying to destroy him, but he failed. He didn't end there, alas. Watch him being tempted of the devil forty days and forty nights in the wilderness. Keep your eye on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Was there ever such malignity, such hatred, such devilry rampant? Go and read your four Gospels. Look how they treated this Son of God who came to save, who worked miracles, who was always doing acts of kindness. Look at the, what the world did to him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They threw stones at him. They spat in his face. They all joined in a mighty chorus and said, Away with him, crucify him. Give us a robber rather than this man. What is it? It's nothing but the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And look at it reaching its intensity. There in that hall of trial, when all the powers are set against him, and when they condemn him, and there I see him nailed to the tree. The seed of the woman is conquering, isn't he? He's brought it about. He's entered into Judas. He's incarnated himself, as it were, in Judas. And there he is. They've got him. They're nailing him. They're killing him. He's expiring. The seed of the serpent has conquered. No, no. Do you know what was happening there? What was really happening there, according to the Apostle Paul in the second chapter of the epistle to the Colossians, was this. That he who was dying was there triumphing over the principalities and powers. Putting them to an open shame and triumphing over them in it, in that very thing. He did die and he was buried. And they thought they'd sealed their victory by putting the stone over the mouth of that grave and sealing it. But he burst asunder the bends of death and arose triumphant o'er the grave. He went out leaving the death clothes alone as evidence in the tomb. And he manifested himself to the people. And he arose and sent the Holy Ghost. What am I talking about? Well, my dear friends, this is the drama of salvation. This is the exposition of what we are told in Genesis 3.15. It's the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end. You notice how it was put by God himself? 
he shall bruise thy head, and it shall bruise his heel. It's a terrible fight, this. The devil is so powerful, he's so mighty, he's so strong, he's so subtle, that he takes the power of God to deal with him and to vanquish him. And the victory over the devil is not possible without this incident, this episode. It shall bruise his heel. And he was bruised. He died. The devil thought he'd killed him. He'd only bruised his heel. He'd forgotten what God had said in Eden. But he did bruise his heel. There is no deliverance from Satan except through the death of Christ. It meant that. That's how he delivers. His heel was bruised. He suffered. He bore the punishment. He did die. Literally tasted death for every man. But in so doing, he has bruised the serpent's death. He said just before that death of his, Now is the prince of this world cast out. Now is the judgment of this world. He delivered him on that occasion a mortal wound. By his death, the Lord Jesus Christ, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in the second chapter, has destroyed the works of the devil, him that had the power of death and held all men in bondage. He's robbed him of that power. He's taken the sting out of death. He's delivered the devil a mortal wound from which he will never recover. But the end has not yet come. Since then the victory has been continuing. The sending of the Holy Ghost has been, has had this effect. That the fight still goes on with a greater intensity. And the gospel, this gospel I'm preaching unto you, is being preached to tell men and women that the devil has received that mortal wound and that all who look to Christ and who trust in him and believe in him can be taken out of the dominion of Satan, can be rescued and redeemed. Go and tell them, says the Lord to Paul on the road to Damascus, that the way is wide open. They have but to come out in the strength of my victory. And it has been preached ever since. And when it goes in the power of the Holy Ghost, it convicts men of their bondage to Satan, of their helplessness and hopelessness. It opens their eyes to the salvation in Christ, and it brings them out, and it's going on. And it will go on. Until the day comes when this selfsame seed of the woman, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come back again. And he'll come back finally to rout all his enemies. Satan and all who belong to him will be cast into the lake of perdition. Evil and all its vestiges will be burned out of existence. There shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And Satan will finally be destroyed to all eternity. And Jesus shall reign.
Where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. A day is coming when Satan shall not only be bound, but shall be cast to destruction. And sin and evil shall be no more. He shall bruise thy head. God in Christ will finally be perfectly and completely victorious. And the devil will be robbed and shorn of all his power and his might. Friends, is the Christian message. And it comes to you, you see, like this. By nature, you belong to the devil. That's why the world is living as it is, because it belongs to him. That's why it laughs at the gospel and ridicules talk about the blood of Christ. It's blinded by its God, its master, the strong man armed. And this is the terrifying thought. If you die like that, you will go to the same misery, the same destruction, and the same wretchedness as the devil and all his fossils. But if you believe that God sent his own son into this world to deliver you and to rescue from that bondage, from those horrid clutches, and to transfer you to his own kingdom, and to make you his son, and to shower his blessings upon you. You have nothing to fear about the end of the world, nor of the judgment of God, because in Christ you've already passed from judgment to life. The devil can't touch you. The whole world, says John in his first epistle, lieth in the evil one, but the evil one toucheth us not. We belong to God, and God's seed is in us. What's the blood that's in you? What's the seed that's in you? Is it the seed of the devil? Or do you belong to the seed of the woman? Have you received the seed divine? Have you been born again? Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. My dear friend, this is not remote. I'm talking about you. You are either in the hands of the devil, or you're in the hands of God. And your eternal fate will correspond. But if you are in the hands of the devil, I plead with you, recognize your position and your condition. Hearken unto this wonderful message about God sending his own son, made of a woman, seed of the woman, to rescue and redeem you. Cast yourself upon him. Speak to him. Tell him, though I cannot see you, I believe you're there. I believe the message. Deliver me. And he will deliver you. And you will be given a new life and a new strength and a new power. And you will be enabled to resist the devil. And have the wonderful experience for the first time in your life of seeing him fleeing from you.
because he cannot withstand the name and the blood of the Christ that is now upon him. Amen.